Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk and thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. Today I want to talk about the rise of therapy speak and more specifically the misuse of therapy related terms in everyday conversation. So first off, what is therapy speak? I conceptualize therapy speak as using therapy related or mental health words and phrases in everyday talk. With the rise of mental health being talked about on social media, we have seen more people having language for what they have experienced, more education on mental health topics, and in turn, more frequent use of therapy-related words in everyday conversations. Therapy speak is not necessarily inherently bad. As a psychologist, I am super happy that people are talking about mental health more and it is becoming more normalized. However, what we tend to see on social media at least is people using clinical words and phrases in the wrong way, which can be damaging. Um, It may also dilute or skew the true meaning of the word and intentionally or unintentionally spread misinformation. So the inspiration for this episode was actually twofold. Uh, Outside of generally hearing the phrase therapy speak, recently there have been two clear examples of the use of therapy speak that I have come across within the past month or so. So the first one was the leaked text between Jonah Hill and his ex Sarah Brady and Jonah's use of the term boundaries. And another was a less public situation that happened on TikTok recently where an individual stated that she made the realization that intrusive thoughts are just intuition. So first, I want to cover some commonly misused terms I have seen on social media or have heard in real life and then discuss why the misuse of these terms can be harmful. So first, we're just going to jump in and we're going to start with boundaries because there has been a lot of discussion about this with relation to the Jonah Hill text messages. If you are unsure what I am referring to, Sarah Brady, Jonah Hill's ex, released text messages on her Instagram stories and it caused a lot of buzz. I have seen a lot of mental health professionals comment on the improper use of his term boundaries. I have seen people label him as abusive or a narcissist, and I have also seen other people take his side. So I want to make it very clear that I honestly don't have a lot of feelings about the situation, mainly because I don't know the whole situation. I know who Jonah Hill is, and I like some of the movies he has been in, but 
I literally had no idea who Sarah Brady was until these texts. So all of this to say, my commentary on this situation is not on what is right or wrong, what was said, what was not said, what contacts were missing, etc. It is solely focused on the misuse of the term boundaries. And I want to make that very clear because I have made social media posts about this and it became very clear to me that even when I am just commenting on one aspect of the situation, people definitely infer what I am saying, what I mean, etc. So I'm going to start by reading at least one of the text messages that was leaked. There were a number of text messages that were leaked, but I'm just going to focus on this one and then kind of dissect the text message. So this message said, plain and simple, if you need surfing with men, boundary lists inappropriate friendships with men, to model, to post pictures of yourself in a bathing suit, to post sexual pictures, friendships with women who are in unstable places and from your wild recent past beyond getting a lunch or a coffee or something respectful, I am not the right partner for you. If these things bring you to a place of happiness, I support it and there will be no hard feelings. These are my boundaries for a romantic partnership. My boundaries with you based on the ways these actions have hurt our trust. So before I dissect the text message, I want to talk about what a boundary is. A boundary is a limit that is put in place to protect one's overall well-being. Boundaries reflect the limits for the individual setting them and how that individual will respond in a given situation. They are not expectations or demands for another person. When we set boundaries, we center our limits and our feelings, not the behavior of other people. So we are taking responsibility for our actions and emotions and not the actions and emotions of others. So when talking about boundaries, this is an example I always give. A demand or expectation is, quote, you cannot talk to me that way. In this situation, we are placing the expectations on another person. We are focusing on their behavior and not indicating anything about ourselves or how we will respond. You can say you can't talk to me that way all you want, but at the end of the day, we cannot control the behavior of another person and we cannot control whether they will or will not talk to you in a certain way that you don't want. A boundary, in contrast, is saying something like, quote, if you continue to talk to me this way, I will remove myself from the situation because it is making me uncomfortable. In this example, the person setting the boundary is not expecting or demanding the person not to talk to them in that manner, but rather explains the consequences, which is the behavior of the individual setting the boundary, if they continue to do so. It also centers the individual who is setting the boundary's feelings and experiences and gives an explanation as to why the individual will leave. So when we look at Jonah Hill's alleged text to Sarah, he is not setting boundaries because the focus is on Sarah's behavior and what she quote needs and nothing about how he feels or how he is going to respond to this behavior or why this behavior is upsetting to him. I will say he does say, quote, I am not the right partner for you after listing her assumed needs Although one can infer that this may mean he will leave the relationship, 
That is not what is said. And once again, center Sarah and not Jonah. So I'll be honest, it is hard for me to change this exchange into actual boundary setting, especially knowing this exchange was a few months into their relationship. And to my understanding, because they started dating in the summer, and then this exchange was in December, my understanding is Jonah knew what her job was, what her Instagram looked like before dating. Thus, I would argue if he was really uncomfortable with bikini pictures and her doing her job, a boundary would have been set before they started dating, either that or they would have never started dating in the first place. So maybe they started talking and maybe he thought he felt comfortable with her profession and her job. And then through talking, he realized that wouldn't be. So a boundary may have sounded something like, I really like you and we get along well. However, I am uncomfortable with dating someone who surfs with men for a living and posts bikini pictures on Instagram. Thus, I'll no longer be pursuing this relationship. Um, And I mean, people may argue that he thought he could handle at the beginning of the relationship and recognize that he couldn't. And that's okay too. It is okay for our like values or expectations to change or even our boundaries to change, but we would have to communicate them as boundaries. And now that I'm reflecting on what I've just been saying, that is probably the only way I could really turn this text into boundaries, like something along the lines of, I know surfing is your job. And before we started dating, I knew you posted sexual and bikini pictures on Instagram. And I thought I would be okay with that. However, I've come to realize that I'm uncomfortable being in a relationship with someone who does these things. Um, Going off of his text messages, then the follow-up might be something like, thus, I think it would be best if we break up so you can continue doing what you're doing and that I am in a relationship with someone I'm able to feel more secure and trust with. I do want to highlight, I'm not saying every time you set a boundary due to a difference that, you know, behavior of the person setting the boundary needs to be to break up. Absolutely not. But when it comes to something like someone's job and profession, unless the other person is willingly and not feeling coerced to give that up and you can't really see eye to eye, values are different, you know, maybe the ending of the relationship is the best thing. Um, But in that reflection, what I just tried to turn into a boundary, I'm not necessarily changing anything Jonah said, but rather changing the wording so the focus is on Jonah's feelings and not the expectation of Sarah to stop. I will note that there were also other texts shared, like I said, I wasn't going to read them all, that were from a few months prior that appeared to be related to Jonah telling Sarah to remove some pictures and videos of her bikinis and surfing. Thus, I can see how Jonah may think his boundaries were being disrespected if he had repeatedly asked her to remove photos and videos and she didn't. However, once again, telling someone to do something is not setting a boundary. A boundary in that situation would be if you continue to post pictures or videos on Instagram in bikinis, I'm going to have to end the relationship because I feel insecure seeing men commenting on your photos or even just a conversation about how the posts make him feel. And who knows? They might have had this conversation. This is honestly why I don't have a strong opinion on the actual situation because I don't know all the context. Um, I'm just obviously making up 
situations and assumptions here because we don't know the whole situation and who knows maybe jonah did set actual boundaries initially and they were violated and then in turn it turned into expectations and demands etc we do not know but the texts we do have do not show boundaries they are dictations of expectations and behaviors that he expects of Sarah. And some may argue that they reflect him trying to control her by not being able to post things that are directly related to her job or who she can and cannot be friends with. What we see is Jonah restricting Sarah's behavior to seemingly make him more comfortable rather than expressing his feelings or needs in a healthy manner. Once again, he may have already done that. We do not know. I am just speaking on the misuse of the term boundaries based on that specific text exchange that we do have. So obviously this is just one public example, but this can apply to any time someone misuses the term boundaries when they're actually setting expectations or demands. When we misuse the term boundaries, it can be an attempt to control another person under the guise of a positive concept. So what I mean by this is that boundaries have a positive connotation in general. They are healthy limits put in place to protect our well-being. Thus, if someone is placing expectations or demands on another person in an attempt to tr control them, and I also want to clarify, I'm not saying that this was Jonah Hill's intent. This is a separate conversation. I am just talking broadly. Um, but if somebody is putting expectations and demand in place and saying their boundaries, it may be more difficult for the person to challenge it. It may also slowly reduce the individual on the receiving end's autonomy and independence. So as a very extreme example, if in a romantic relationship, one partner is in a job where they get a lot of romantic attention or dress in a way that is more sexualized, and the other partner says, you cannot work there, this is a boundary I am setting for our relationship to work, the individual on the receiving end may find it more difficult to challenge it because the partner used the term boundary, and the individual, especially if they want to be with their partner, may end up quitting their job to respect their partner's boundary, ultimately leaving them jobless or needing to find another form of income as an extreme example. So when you are setting a boundary, ask yourself, what is it that I need? How do I feel if I'm not getting that? And what will my response be if that need is not met? For example, if you need a boss that respects your time and allows you to leave at your expected time and not work over especially unpaid, maybe you feel devalued when you don't get it, and when you feel that way, your response will be to leave at your scheduled time, contact HR, or find a new job depending on the circumstance. Thus, a boundary would sound like, I feel devalued when you expect me to stay after work unpaid to finish projects that you assigned last minute. From here on forward, I will be clocking out at my designated time and pick work back up the next day. If this is going to be a problem, unfortunately, I will have to contact HR. So in that example, you are identifying your need, how you are feeling when that need is not met, and what your response to, will be. Once again, the focus is on your needs and feelings. When you are on the receiving end of a boundary, ask yourself, is this person actually setting a boundary or are they demanding or expecting me to be the one to change? And that can really help you 
figure out for yourself, is this actually a boundary or is this an expectation or demand? Because that is going to likely determine what your next steps are with that individual in that relationship. Next, I want to talk about intrusive thoughts. In the intro, I gave a little example of a way that it may be misused with a recent TikTok where a girl said, intrusive thoughts are just your intuition. But I have also seen people confusing intrusive thoughts with impulsive thoughts or automatic thoughts. So first off, what is an intrusive thought? An intrusive thought is an unwanted thought or mental image that comes to mind and is disturbing or causes distress to the individual experiencing it. The thoughts are often things that go against who the person is, what they believe, and what they value. For example, the person may not be violent at all, but has intrusive thoughts about stabbing their loved ones. Intrusive thoughts are most commonly seen in obsessive compulsive disorder and may have themes of harm, sex, religion, contamination, among other themes. Intrusive thoughts can also occur in other mental health disorders such as PTSD, anxiety, and depressive disorders. They also may occur in individuals who do not have a diagnosable mental health condition. Intrusive thoughts are such because they intrude on the person's life. Typically, and especially in OCD, the individual will do whatever they can to lessen the frequency or intensity of their intrusive thoughts, which can disrupt their functioning because the person does not want to act on the intrusive thought. Although sometimes people may have a passing intrusive thought, um, I most, most often these thoughts are repetitive. There's also often shame, guilt, or anxiety associated with having these thoughts because they are disturbing. Impulsive thoughts are different, and they could also be a symptom of a mental health condition such as ADHD or impulse control disorder, and sometimes can be unpleasant, but they generally are more so just your brain telling you to do things without any thought or action. They're also often a one-time thing. So for example, you may be at a wedding and you have an impulsive thought to smash your face into the wedding cake. Or you wake up one morning and have the impulsive thought to shave your head. Most often, these thoughts are not harmful and generally do not cause anxiety, guilt, or shame like we see with those intrusive thoughts. Unlike intrusive thoughts, where the person truly does not want to act on the thought, people with impulsive thoughts may act on them without considering the consequences and the action of doing so, so the action of acting on these impulsive thoughts is often related to under control rather than a mental health condition such as OCD. But like I said, they can be present in certain mental health conditions. Thus, impulsive thoughts may also impact a person's functioning due to acting on them, but it impairs their functioning in a different way. Automatic thoughts can also be confused with intrusive thoughts, and these are thoughts that automatically pop into mind in response to a stimuli that are outside of our consciousness. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, we talk about automatic negative thoughts in an attempt to challenge or change them, but not all automatic thoughts are negative. For example, 
you're walking down the street and you see a friend across the street walking towards you. You wave and yell their name and they continue walking. Some automatic thoughts that may be triggered by that situation are they didn't see me. So that's a pretty neutral thought. They must be mad at me. So that may be a more negative thought or, well, that was awkward. Whatever the first thought that popped into mind after the situation occurred is that automatic thought. I will be honest, I am not really sure what kind of thoughts the girl in the video that said intrusive thoughts are intuition were talking about. If anything, they may be automatic thoughts, like a kind of gut reaction. Like for example, if your friend brings you to a party and immediately when you arrive, your first thought is, I feel really uncomfortable. That may be your intuition telling you to leave, but I promise you intrusive thoughts are not intuition. So why is the misuse of the term intrusive thoughts harmful? First, if we are using the term when we are referring to impulsive or automatic thoughts, we are misrepresenting what we mean. And depending on the platform, the situation, we may be unintentionally spreading misinformation about what intrusive thoughts are. Second, when people use the term intrusive thoughts to refer to other types of thoughts, we are minimizing the experiences that individuals with true intrusive thoughts that impact their daily functioning that are significantly distressing have. The next therapy speak term I want to talk about that I often see misused is gaslighting. So gaslighting is an intentional manipulation tactic often used by abusers that makes the victim question their own perception of reality. When someone gaslights another, they deny the existence of the person's reality. And when this happens repeatedly, the individual on the receiving end starts to question what is true and what is not. Some common gaslighting phrases may include, I never did or I never said that. You are just being sensitive. You are acting crazy. You are being delusional. You're just being paranoid. Or that never happened. I want to clarify that just because somebody is saying these phrases doesn't mean they're necessarily gaslighting them, but things like that may be signs of gaslighting. There are also many ways individuals can gaslight others. So first, they may shift blame onto another person to avoid accountability. For example, an abusive partner or parent may blame their partner or child for the abuse by saying things like, you made me do it, or if you, doing, um, if you didn't do X, then I wouldn't have to do Y. Another way individuals gaslight others is by denying the truth. We see gaslighting a lot in intimate partner relationships. So an example with regard to denying the truth, maybe one partner questions if the other is cheating on them. And then the cheating partner in question denies such accusations and makes up stories that seem relatively convincing. Thus, with the continual denial of truth, the individual who is being gaslit starts to question their own reality. So even if they have evidence of cheating, if the person keeps denying it and has, you know, solid denial, solid excuses, they may question the evidence that they found. 
Gaslighting can also come in the form of minimizing or dismissing someone else's needs. So in this type of gaslighting, the gaslighter makes the victim's needs feel unimportant, making the victim doubt and question themselves. The person doing the gaslighting may say things like, you're so needy, or why do you keep asking me for things? Disapproval is a more subtle way that people may gaslight others. For example, if a parent is constantly disapproving of their child's decisions and questioning their judgment, the child will eventually internalize this to the point that they too will question their own decisions and judgment. It is also not uncommon for gaslighters to isolate or otherwise alienate their victims from their support system in order to gain more control. However, they will do this in a seemingly supportive way by saying things like, I don't think your best friend has your best interest at heart, or I really don't like the way your family is treating you, and I think it would be best if you withdraw from them. I do want to note that these statements alone are not gaslighting, as a partner could have valid concerns. But remember, with gaslighting, the key is that it is intentional manipulation. With gaslighting, the goal of these statements is to isolate the individual and gain more control over them. Some people who gaslight, especially in romantic relationships, will often use love as an excuse for their behavior, saying things like, I only did that because I love you, or if you love me, you will do X. Not only is this an attempt to alter the way the victim perceives the situation, but in the future, it can discourage the victim from voicing their concerns. Another form of gaslighting is quote-unquote forgetting. In this type of gaslighting, the gaslighter pretends to have forgotten what took place. This one can be particularly tricky because there's no way to really prove whether or not someone forgot something. But nevertheless, if you didn't forget, you'll know it. However, like with other forms, if the forgetting happens often, you may start to question your own memory. On a very basic level, simply invalidating someone else's emotions, once again, with the intent of manipulation, is gaslighting. Accidentally invalidating someone's emotions is not gaslighting. I want to make that very, very clear. So in this type of gaslighting, the person may say, you don't really feel that way, or it's not that big of a deal. These phrases in the context of gaslighting are an attempt to make the victim question their own truth. Another form of gaslighting is withholding information. We may see this in romantic relationships, but a clearer example is seeing this in a work setting. For example, a boss or a manager may intentionally withhold information from an employee with the goal of setting them up for failure. So depending on the situation, the victim may fear asking for clarification so not to appear incompetent. And if they do question their boss or coworker, they are dismissed, blamed, or met with defensiveness. Another way gaslighting may show up is by accusing the victim of being paranoid. I gave some of these phrases earlier as examples of common phrases you might hear with gaslighting, but being told you're crazy or you're just being paranoid with the intent of controlling the victim's perspective are examples of this. The last example of gaslighting I'm going to give is constant criticism. This type ties back to the use of disapproval as a way to control someone's behavior, but it's a bit more extreme. When someone is constantly disapproving or outright criticizing someone, the victim can internalize these criticisms, feel invalidated, and potentially begin to neglect their own wants and needs, denying their own reality. 
So I just gave a number of examples of what gaslighting is. So the next question is, how has this term been misused in therapy speak? Mainly what I have seen personally is the term gaslighting being thrown around simply when someone disagrees with them. For example, if a couple is in an argument and one person disagrees with another, the person may say, you're gaslighting me. It is so important to remember that gaslighting is an intentional form of manipulation and doesn't necessarily involve disagreement, but rather an intentional effort to distort someone's reality. Even if in a, in a couple, they're in a disagreement and one partner says, I asked you to take out the trash this morning and the other partner says, no, you didn't. That may not be gaslighting if the second person truly did not hear the question being asked and the intent of the no, you didn't is simply because they truly believe it was never asked of them, not because they're trying to distort the other partner's reality. So misusing the term gaslighting can be harmful, especially in relationships, because it breaks down trust and communication. If someone is always being accused of gaslighting, they are likely going to feel like they have to walk on eggshells around that person, or maybe more hesitant to talk to them in the first place. Also, for the individual throwing around the term gaslighting, it is a way for the individual to deflect from acknowledging the role they play in any given interaction. And it does not allow for reflection on their own behavior to gain insights into what they can do differently moving forward and take accountability for their actions. So the next therapy speak term I want to cover is narcissist or any variation of that term. I did a whole episode on narcissism with Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, which was episode 125. So go listen to that if you haven't already and you want to learn more about narcissism and narcissistic abuse. However, at its core, narcissistic personality disorder is a disorder characterized by the need for admiration, grandiosity, and lack of empathy. Narcissism is a personality trait distinct from NPD that refers to thinking highly of yourself, a preoccupation with oneself and one's own needs, often at the expense of others. We can all have narcissistic tendencies at times, depending on the circumstances and other aspects of our personality, but that does not mean that we are a narcissist or have narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissism exists on a spectrum from healthy narcissism to disordered narcissism, which we would see in NPD. So similar to gaslighting, we have seen this term used when someone disagrees with someone else. I have also seen it used to describe any behavior that is just simply rude. Not everyone is a narcissist. Some people are just jerks or just mean. Just because somebody is a jerk or mean does not necessarily mean they are a narcissist. Although I said narcissism exists on a spectrum, when people are referring to a narcissist, they are most often implying someone has narcissistic personality disorder. First, the patterns of behavior observed in MPD are exactly that. They are persistent patterns of behavior. Therefore, it's impossible to like, quote unquote, diagnose or identify someone as a narcissist based on one interaction or even worse, like a few second clip on social media, because I have definitely seen that as well. 
And similar to gaslighting, when individuals throw out the term narcissist in incorrect contexts, it allows them to deflect from their role in that situation and makes it easier not to reflect on their own behavior to gain insights into what upset them about that interaction and why they jumped to labeling the other person as a narcissist. Additionally, by calling anyone who is a jerk or disagrees with you a narcissist, it minimizes the experience that true victims of narcissistic abuse face. It also just dilutes what it means to have narcissistic personality disorder, what narcissism is, distorts, and potentially could spread misinformation. Another term that I have seen used quite frequently and used correctly and misused in therapy speak is dissociation. So dissociation is a mental process where a person disconnects from their thoughts, feelings, memories, or sense of identity. Similar to the personality trait of narcissism, dissociation is also a spectrum. So dissociation can be a normal part of human functioning. For example, have you ever driven somewhere, gotten to your destination, and literally have zero recollection of how you got there? Have you ever daydreamed during school or been in a conversation with someone and suddenly you realize you have not heard a single word that they have said? These are all examples of dissociation that I would consider a normal human function. But we also see dissociation with trauma or anxiety disorders, where dissociation is a coping skill to deal with a trauma response. People who experience a traumatic event will often have some degree of dissociation during the event itself or in the following hours, days, or weeks. Dissociation can also occur if a person is getting too overwhelmed or overstimulated as a way to protect them. We then see full-blown dissociative disorders that cause disruption to one's functioning. So we have the you know, normal human functioning dissociation, dissociation that's seen more in the anxiety disorders as a coping skill, protective functioning, and then the dissociative disorders. So we see dissociative amnesia. So the main symptom of dissociative amnesia is memory loss that is more severe than normal forgetfulness and can't be explained by a medical condition. A person experiencing dissociative amnesia can't recall information about themselves or events and people in their life, especially from a traumatic time. Dissociative amnesia can be specific to events in a certain time, such as a traumatic event, or more rarely can involve complete loss of memory about oneself. It may sometimes involve travel or confused wandering away from your life, which is known as dissociative fugue. And if anyone listening is a One Tree Hill fan out there, if uh, I can't remember what season it was, but Clay has dissociative fugue um, and it's actually a pretty good representation of mental health. I am very critical of representations of mental health in TV and media, but Clay's experience of dissociative fugue is a pretty accurate representation from what I understand. This is not an area of expertise of mine. And then an episode of amnesia usually occurs suddenly and may last minutes, hours, and very, very rarely months or years. Then another type of dissociative disorder is depersonalization derealization disorder. 
So this involves an ongoing or episodic sense of detachment or being outside oneself. So observing one's actions, feelings, thoughts, and self from a distance as though they were watching a movie. And that's depersonalization. Other people and things around the person may also feel detached and foggy or dreamlike. Time may be slowed down or sped up and the world may seem unreal. And that is what we call derealization. People with this disorder may experience depersonalization, derealization, or both. Symptoms, which can be profoundly distressing, may last only a few moments or come and go over many years, similar to other dissociative disorders. Um, and typically, like other dissociative disorders, depersonalization, derealization disorder typically stems from trauma. Then we have dissociative identity disorder. This is formerly known as multiple personality disorder and is characterized by switching to alternate identities. So each identity may have a unique name, personal history, and characteristics, including obvious differences in voice, gender, mannerisms, and even such physical qualities as the need for eyeglasses. There are also differences in how familiar each identity is with the other. People with dissociative identity disorder typically also have dissociative amnesia and often have dissociative fugue, and this disorder often stems from severe trauma. There are a few times I have observed dissociation being misused in therapy speak. First, I have seen where individuals who experience dissociation discuss it in terms of a dissociative disorder. Um, I don't know these people, and I don't know all their diagnosis, but as I said at the beginning, dissociation is a spectrum and can be a normal experience and not necessarily a symptom of disorder. So the main one I see, honestly, a lot is people that experience dissociation that could be a part of normal functioning or as a protective factor and jump to dissociative identity disorder. I also think people talk about dissociation and don't truly know what it means or because it is a broad spectrum people can be talking about dissociation meaning things like you know they drove and didn't remember how they get there but people that don't know that's what they're referring to are jumping to a dissociative disorder or something more severe so with dissociation a potential harm is not only just the misuse of pathologizing basically a normal human experience as a true disorder i think because dissociation is such a spectrum and people tend to talk about it in terms of dissociative disorders it's kind of lost its meaning or um, people don't have a true understanding of what it is anymore and I'll be honest, and I've said this on this podcast before, this is not an area of expertise of mine, and it definitely is something I have had to learn about and research over the years. Um, but just know that if somebody is talking about dissociating, it may be helpful for them to um, describe what that means for them because a key factor of dissociation is it happens outside of the person's awareness so things like daydreaming i'm thinking of the normal functioning normal human behaviors you know getting from point a to point b you reflect back and you're like oh my gosh i don't remember that um so you can have those experiences that are briefer but as i said with the 
true disorders, um, it may last only minutes, but it also may last a lot longer. So getting clarification on that, if somebody is talking about dissociating, asking them if they feel comfortable, describe what they mean, may be helpful to, I don't know, get some clarification on therapy speak. And I feel like I did clarification like five times in a row. Okay, so next I want to touch on trauma and trauma responses. And we just talked about how dissociation, a lot of times, especially with the disorder, stem from trauma. So I thought this was a good thing to touch on next. So in recent years, there has been a significant increase in people talking about trauma on social media. On the one hand, I think this is great because it is bringing awareness to the topic and individuals can find healing as well as relate to others. On the other hand, the definition of trauma has evolved over time, and many people use the term to describe everyday experiences or reactions to stressors. The thing that is hard with trauma, though, is what is traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for another. Thus, it is hard to tell someone that they are, are describing, or that what they are describing is a trauma or is not necessarily traumatic because we don't know what their lived experience is. Most people do think of trauma as an event, but the trauma is actually your response to the event. So as I said, one thing can be traumatic for one person and not another. Thus, it's our appraisal of and response to the event that determines if it was traumatic for us. There is not one definition of trauma, and you could probably ask a hundred different people what their definition of trauma is and get a hundred different answers. But how I conceptualize it is something is traumatic if it was an event that had a significant negative impact on your emotionality and functioning. How this shows up can look very different for different people. So it could look like the inability to cope, flashbacks or intrusive memories about the event, uh, physiological responses, etc. Thus, something can be stressful but not traumatic, but once again, that's going to vary person to person. So an example, getting stuck in traffic and causing you to run late can be extremely stressful, but that event likely isn't traumatic because once you get through traffic and arrive at your destination, your negative emotionality likely will lessen and your emotional reaction to the traffic in that moment likely will not cause significant impairment in your functioning for days, weeks, months, or years. In contrast, a car accident may be a traumatic event because it may impact your ability to ride in cars or drive. Um, you may have intrusive memories about the accident. You may not sleep after the accident, etc. So I hope that distinction between a stressful event and a traumatic event kind of made sense. So one way that the use of the word trauma is misused is referring to everyday stressful experiences that one is able to work through once the stressor is resolved and does not leave a lasting impact as traumatic. I actually talked a lot about this in episode 127 with uh, Jacqueline Tenalia when we discussed mental health misinformation on social media. So definitely check that episode out to hear our discussion on that. Another thing I often see on social media is the use of the term trauma response when it comes to literally any behavior. And I have very strong feelings about this, so you might listen to this part and disagree with me, and that is absolutely fine. 
Um, because I know there are plenty of mental health professionals that will make videos saying like X is a trauma response. And I don't want to invalidate people's perspectives. I just don't agree with that um, black and white language because my response to anything I see that's like people pleasing is a trauma response. Uh, anxiety is a trauma response, which it definitely could be. Um, you know, avoiding conflict is a trauma response. My response is always not everything is a trauma response. Everything could be but not everything is because people may people please because of trauma or they may people please because they are anxious or maybe that is just their personality. So it's doing a disservice to saying people pleasing is a trauma response and not giving any other option for what people pleasing could be um, and causes people to search for their trauma that caused this people pleasing. So when people consume this information on social media and think to themselves, oh, I people please, so it must be due to trauma, they may start using such terminology in everyday conversations when that's not necessarily accurate for them. Another concern with labeling things as trauma or trauma response when it may not be accurate for the individual is it may make it harder to process what is going on. Trauma is something that is helpful to work with a mental health professional on if you have access to that, which I know mental health care is not accessible. But the benefit of seeking someone trained in trauma therapy, for example, is to help the individual learn skills to cope with and manage the symptoms related to the trauma as well as process and work through it. So if we label something as a trauma response when it isn't necessarily one, especially if we don't know what the trauma was that caused it, it can make it harder for us to change our behaviors because we can't work through the thing that potentially caused it, especially if that thing doesn't exist or we think it's trauma, but we can't pinpoint the trauma. We can't process the trauma. I hope that made sense. Further, as I stated earlier, it is truly hard to tell someone that their experience was or was not trauma because they are the ones with the lived experience. And it's also not our job to label something as traumatic or not for another person. Thus, it can cause some communication breakdown. It can cause some lack of understanding of what someone is meaning when they are talking about trauma and potentially can cause some dispensiveness or disruption to a relationship, particularly if someone is saying that something another person did cause trauma. So like I said with dissociation, depending on the context and the person, it may be helpful to explore what they mean by trauma, um, assuming they feel comfortable sharing with you and understanding their reactions, their responses, how this is impacting their functioning, etc. The last thing I want to talk about is the misuse of certain diagnoses and therapy speak. I feel like this has been going on way before the other terms became popular in normal conversation. However, I still see it used even with the rise of accurate mental health information online. And I really just want to highlight two disorders I still consistently see 
misused in therapy speak. The first one is OCD. I have done, I think, three episodes now on OCD, so I will not dive into it. Please go back and listen to them. But true OCD is characterized by obsessive obsessions, which are intrusive and unwanted thoughts that cause significant distress. We've already talked about intrusive thoughts on this episode and or compulsions, which are repetitive behaviors that a person feels that they have to do to lessen the distress associated with the obsessions. And the obsessions and compulsions significantly impair a person's functioning. In therapy speak, we tend to see people use phrases like, I am so OCD, um, or they might refer to a single action or behavior as OCD, such as organizing their room in a certain way. But the people that usually say this not only have a misunderstanding of what OCD is, um, doing those things such as organizing or cleaning tend to bring the person comfort. And they do these things because they enjoy them, not because they feel they have to, which is why people with OCD engage in those compulsive behaviors. When people use OCD to refer to a single action or behavior, they undermine the significant distress that occurs with OCD and the significant impact it has on a person's functioning. They also communicate that they don't have an understanding of the disorder. And I follow a lot of experts in OCD that are much more knowledgeable than me. And I see them talking about this all the time because it is so prevalent that people are just throwing around the term OCD when what they're referring to is not obsessive compulsive disorder at all. The other disorder I want to talk about that I see misused in therapy speak a lot is bipolar disorder. People will often use the term bipolar to refer to sudden shifts in mood or describe going from happy to sad quickly. However, that is not what bipolar is. Bipolar disorder, by definition, requires a manic or hypomanic episode. So a manic episode is at least a one-week period in which an individual has a persistently elevated, expansive, or irritable mood an abnormally and persistently increased activity or energy level. I won't go into all the criteria for a manic episode, but during this period, the person may experience grandiosity, decreased need for sleep, flight of ideas or subjective experience that thoughts are racing, and engagement in activities that have a high potential for painful consequences. Like the vast majority of mental health conditions, this mood disturbance causes marked impairment in functioning. A hypomanic episode, in contrast, is at least four consecutive days of persistently elevated, expansive, or irritable mood and abnormally and persistently increased activity or energy. There is similar subsequent criteria to a manic episode, but a distinct difference is the episode is not severe enough to cause marked impairment to functioning. However, the disturbance in mood and change in functioning are observed by others. So there is still a change in functioning. It is just not impairing the functioning. So when people use the term bipolar to talk about mood shifts, we are pathologizing normal human behavior and emotions because as humans, our moods shift quickly. Further, similar to OCD, when people use the term to refer to mood shifts or like 
anger and sadness and not a manic or hypermanic episode, they undermine the significant impact and stress having bipolar disorder has on an individual as well as their loved ones. So I just highlighted a number of frequent therapy speak terms I have seen floating around the internet. I also recognize there's a lot more I can speak on and maybe I will do a part two if people are interested. I know this is already a long episode for my solo episode, so I wanted to kind of wrap it up here. But I think the main thing I want to drive home is the duality with therapy speak. I absolutely love that people are talking about mental health more, that we are having open conversations and people feel more comfortable sharing their experiences. And I do not want therapy speak to be weaponized in any way or used incorrectly, which perpetuates the misinformation we already see all over the internet. Further, I think the rise in therapy speak, and when I say the rise in therapy speak, I mean the misuse of terms in everyday language may speak to a larger issue of not always knowing where the information you are consuming comes from and feeling that you can get all the nuance of a mental health diagnosis word term in a singular post on social media my hope is that people aren't actually doing the latter but we know on social media's followers and a blue check mark equate to credibility even if that's not actually the case. So even though I love that there is so much mental health information out there now on social media, on the internet in general, I do question or wonder if we're seeing the rise in therapy speak, not only just because of the rise in conversation, but also because people are going to social media to get their information about mental health because it's more digestible, more accessible, and not necessarily credible sources all the time. Thus, I guess the duality in this situation is this. I want people to continue to have conversations about mental health and use mental health terms if those accurately describe what the person is experiencing. And at the same time, we need to be mindful of our understanding of these terms, how we use them, and where we are learning the information about these terms from. So I would love to hear y'all's feedback on this episode and any other terms or phrases you would add to the list that I included on here. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and share this episode with someone who you think will enjoy it. And I will catch you in next week's episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.